The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the 16th Psalm. That's where we'll be tonight. We're continuing in our series through the book of Psalms. Uh, over the last several, several years, we've worked through the first 15 psalms, uh, and I told you recently, I hope to preach through all 150 psalms before I die, uh, and so that's going to take a long time, but uh, it'd be great if I could make it, and so uh, it's going to be fun. We're in the 16th. We're, we've got a long way to go. This psalm, the 16th psalm, is called a miktam of David. You'll see that title throughout the psalms in a couple places, but it's rarer than maybe some others. The meaning of that word is not certain, uh, but some think it refers to being like gold or golden. Uh, Others think the idea of that word is to cover as in like covering the mouth because this psalm is written out of a time of distress and it may have had to be sung with a sense of secrecy. Either way that goes, we can't be sure about what that word exactly is. We're going to find in this psalm a common pattern seen throughout the psalms. We're going to see an honest declaration of difficulty, but an equally robust declaration of hope in God. And so I hope you've turned to the 16th psalm. We're going to read that together. Praise God. Here we go. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Praise God for his word. Uh, The idea of God as a refuge is a beautiful truth to behold. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Like a family fleeing the destructive winds of a violent storm by running to a basement or a cellar, We can run to God in times of trouble and know that we will be safe. But the question is, what does this look like practically? How do we take refuge in the Lord in times of trouble? We must begin with humble acknowledgement of our inadequacy. You see, when our hearts and minds are not convinced of our need for God... We often end up like someone trying to wrestle a tornado into submission. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time thinking of something more foolish or futile. 
Experts in disaster preparedness always encourage people to have a plan before there is a problem. It is unwise to ignore the potential for difficult circumstances and then find yourself scrambling when that potential becomes a reality. The principle we're talking about there is true when it comes to taking refuge in God during times of trouble. We have been given his word full of truth about who he is and the promises he has made to us. By filling our hearts and minds with these truths, we are able to run to them when darkness and despair try to grip us. There is real safety and comfort to be found in the unmatched might of our God and his precious promises to us. Verse 2 says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. This is an example of the encouragement I just gave you, of what I was encouraging you to do and how we practically take refuge in the Lord. David, first of all, declares the beautiful truth that the God who created the cosmos and rules as king over all creation is not just the Lord, but those who trust him by faith can confidently call him My Lord. Then this statement follows. It's likely both an expression of worship and a faithful self-reminder. He says, I have no good besides you. This puts the potential. The potential devastation from whatever difficulty is upon us in proper perspective. To return to the tornado analogy, if a storm were to bear down on us with all its fury, and we, like Job of old, were to lose all earthly possessions and even suffer the grief of loved ones lost as a result, we can be assured, even in the midst of all of that pain, that the greatest good and our most precious treasure can never be taken from us. Through Christ and the power of his gospel, We have relationship with God, both here and now and forever in eternity. Amen. Verse 3 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are all the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The next truth David reminds himself of in his time of trouble is the beauty of belonging to the people of God. Now, it's not clear exactly what the struggle is that David is facing here. People have theories, but we don't really know for sure. David had a lot of different troubles, many enemies, including his own son at one point. But we don't know what the struggle is. But whatever it is, he finds encouragement and solace in the community of faith. Now, I dealt with this verse extensively in the sermon last week that we did over Facebook Live as a result of the snow, so I'm not going to go real deep here. Um, you can check that out online if you want a more detailed dealing with this verse and this subject. Um, but this expression here of delight, that's a strong word, delight in those who belong to God, it should lead us to some healthy self-examination. It is good for us to ask ourselves if we have real love and affection for fellow followers of Jesus. We should push ourselves beyond a surface-level answer and look for evidence in our thoughts and actions. We should ask ourselves, do you have real relationships 
with fellow believers? Do you turn to them in times of trouble or do you tend to isolate instead? Are you someone people know they can turn to when they are going through times of difficulty? It is clear here that as David was processing his struggle, the connection he had to the people of God, which, by the way, supersedes every other earthly relational connection because it is eternal, but that connection he had, it brought him comfort, and even in his words, delight. In the midst of the storm, he's delighting in his connection to the people of God. Now, I want to say this. Maybe some of you have had bad experiences with Christians or people who called themselves Christians. Perhaps this makes it hard for you to imagine having this kind of interdependence and affection for the community of faith. If that is true for you, then let me please on behalf of those who truly want to reflect the love of Jesus, let me say, I'm sorry. But let me also say that you may not have been interacting with actual followers of Jesus. And if you were, it is really no surprise that they failed in loving you perfectly. Part of the beauty of relationships forged by the power of the gospel is that the same power sustains those relationships. Any relationship that goes beyond surface-level pleasantries is going to inevitably have the need for repentance and forgiveness. This is another way true community displays the reality of the gospel. Now, I don't have a direct verse for this, but there are a ton of verses that would support what I'm about to say in principle. All right, so this is deep. I want you to get ready to take a note here. All right, sometimes people act like doofuses, and sometimes they act like dingalings. Did you write that down? That's your take home verse principle for the day, okay? Now, if you're humble enough to admit it, I want you to go ahead and say it out loud because it's good for you, and it'll be good for the person next to you. Say, Sometimes I act like a doofus. Go ahead if that's true. Say it. Praise God. Now, that was if you were humble. Now, if you're self-aware enough, I want you to go ahead and say, I act like a dingling sometimes. Go ahead and say that. That's good for us to say. It's good for us to know. It's good for us to humbly declare. Why? Why does that matter? Because, friends, I, I, I can't speak for you for sure, but I need God's grace every day as a result of the fact that I'm not done being sanctified. If we have this truth close to our hearts, then we will be quicker to extend that grace to others. It's only when we start to get on a high horse and prance around that we have a hard time extending forgiveness to others when they fall short of perfection in the way they deal with us. Is that true or not? It's true. Praise God. That leads us to verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. It is unfortunately easy for us to see references to idolatry in the scriptures and think that it doesn't apply to us. After all, we don't carve little images and worship them for the most part. We don't think the sun and moon are gods that we should sacrifice to. We've moved beyond that, right? However, we need to realize that the first commandment 
is not, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me just because ancient people worshiped false gods in this way. There's a reason. It's very telling that the first thing God said when he gave those commandments is that you shall have no other God before me. The fact that that's the first benevolent boundary he laid for us should say something about, should give us a hint about our tendencies and what we need to be reminded about. We need to know that Jesus echoed this when he told us the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Most of us may not overtly worship nature or totems in the modern West, but we are fools if we think our disordered affections and priorities do not equate to idolatry. It's the same thing. What we worship can be discovered by what consumes our thoughts most often. What we give our time, talent, and treasure to are solid indicators of what our affections are truly set upon. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. We must humbly acknowledge that each one of us is not just capable of functionally worshiping people and things besides God, but we are prone to it. It is good for us to know we are not just capable of worshiping things other than God. We are prone to that. And the fact that the first commandment God gave was have no other gods before me is helpful in us. Why do do you think he did that? Did he just, you know... Write Ten Commandments, toss them in the air, whichever one landed first, that's the one he gave. There's a very important reason and purpose, because every single one of us has this sinful inclination. Uh, And it doesn't just have to do with worshiping celestial bodies or nature or totems. Um, The objects of worship maybe have changed as we've modernized, uh, but our tendency for it has not. Much, if not most of the time, these things that, that grab our attention and affection, these are good things that are not necessarily sinful, but they become so when we will sacrifice more for them than for the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. Things like family, children, marriage, jobs, leisure, and entertainment are all things that are gifts from God to be enjoyed The problem is we all struggle with the tendency to worship the gifts and not the giver. However, thanks be unto God that though we all, whether willing to admit it or not, struggle with this foolish frailty, he is rich in mercy and he is patient with us. Amen. May we all ask God to reveal our idols to grind them into little bits, and if necessary, make us drink them as he did the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai so we can taste just how bitter they really are. Amen. That leads us to verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. If you remember David's story, he's the youngest of many sons of Jesse, 
And the way inheritance worked then, David did not likely have much of inheritance to look forward to from his natural father. However, we see that at least in this moment, he's thankful and content for his inheritance in God. If we look carefully, we will notice that it is not the throne or many blessings or victories in battle that God had given David, which he considers an inheritance. What does he say? He says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. We know from other places in the scripture that David did not always maintain this righteous outlook. And the truth is, we don't either. We are programmed by being marketed to 24-7 to be discontent with our lot in life. It is so easy to get trapped in the prison of comparison. Our eyes darting to and fro, fixating on things we wish we had. Oftentimes, sinfully deciding we deserve them far more than those who have them. The only cure for the wretched ailment of discontentment is to rejoice in the Lord as our inheritance. You may not have gotten the house, the spouse, the kids, or the car that you thought you deserved, but friend, through Christ, you got God, which you definitely did not deserve. Amen. May we be content. Verses 7 and 8 says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Oh, that we would seek and celebrate the wisdom of the Lord. How many of you, how many of you have ever had one of those late night sessions where your mind will not shut its daggone yapper? You guys know what I'm talking about? Mind racing, sleep not coming to the eyes, right? Most of us at one time or another have experienced that. And, and here's the deal. We, we sometimes feel like we have no control over our thoughts. We just have to go along for the ride, strap in, buckle up for the crazy train, Right? While our minds, they conjure up worst case scenarios and read imaginary motives into people's words and actions and just hamster wheel in general focused on things we can't control. We feel like we can't control our thoughts, but this is not true. Our minds can be renewed by the word of God according to Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and other places. We are not slaves to thoughts that are contrary to God's word. As a matter of fact, we are told to take them captive, according to 2 Corinthians 10. We need God's help to discipline our thoughts. But that's what we see in verse 8. David is essentially pointing out the amazing truth that God has not only called us to love and obey him and participate in his mission of saving sinners... He has said he will be our right-hand man while we walk it out. Now, because we care greatly for the protection of the sovereignty of God in our minds here at Love City, I hope that some of you were maybe, maybe you glitched a little bit when I said that God said he'll be your right-hand man. I'm hoping you dog whistled a little bit on me. I hope. Because you might be thinking, well, hold on there, buckaroo. Like that, I don't know about that. 
God is king. We are not. What are we talking about God being your right-hand man? Doesn't that put him in a subservient place? Do you feel like it seems a little crazy to think that God would be okay being considered a right-hand man to mere humans? Let me just say, me too. That, that language makes me nervous, but check this out. Let me read you John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking to his men. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. God is completely comfortable with the idea of being referred to as our helper. How can you be the king of everything and yet okay with being called the helper of your creation? This is the complexity and the amazing nature of our God. I guess when... Insecurity goes away when you're the king of everything, I guess, right? There's just, you're not worried about too much when you're the let there be light and there was light guy, right? So I don't think he's worried. He's not worried about his sovereignty being demeaned. David says here, with confidence and with thankfulness, that though his mind instructs him in the night, that he set the Lord continually before him, and and because he's at my right hand, I will not be Shaken. That's, that is absolutely what that, that's what he's talking about there. Somebody being at your right hand to help, an advocate, somebody that's on your side, on your team. That's God with you. Are you amazed by that? Man, are you thankful that God is willing to be at your right hand to help you? Who are you? Who am I? That God would speak that way. That his care for us would be that tender. That he'd be that involved. It's amazing. Friends, we don't need some new wisdom or some yet undiscovered tactic to experience the freedom of a disciplined mind. Can I say that again? Because I don't think you probably think of things in those terms all the time. We don't need some new wisdom or yet undiscovered tactic to experience the freedom of a disciplined mind. We just need to believe what God has already plainly said. Guys, many of us can quote two verses that lay this out in the most basic terms. Many of us can quote these, okay? So if if you can quote this, I want you to go ahead and say it with me. We'll do it all together. All right, this is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Most of you have seen this uh, on a fridge, on a mirror, on a bumper sticker, crocheted on something, all right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you know it, let's go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. NASB says he will make your paths straight. Either way, that's what he's talking about. He's going to direct you. We, I mean, I saw a bunch of you quote that, okay? Here's, 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 my, here's what I would say. If you can't quote that, I would encourage you to learn it. If you can quote that, I would encourage you to live it. Because if you would live it, if you would believe it, I don't mean I can quote it. I mean, the fact that I can quote it, the fact that I know it has transferred from my mind to my heart and affects the way I conduct myself. That my thoughts have to submit to this truth that is greater than just whatever ramblings might be happening in my own brain. That's what taking thoughts captive looks like. You don't have to ride the crazy train at night. You don't have to have a counseling session with your mind every night where it runs the show. 
All right, that brings us to verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Here we see an example of David being used by God as a prophet through his psalm writing. Okay, Peter, when preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he saw these verses as pointing forward to Jesus. I'm going to read you a significant portion of Scripture from Acts. This is Peter's sermon, right? So, so they, they come out, tongues of fire happen, uh, the Holy Spirit sits upon the disciples, they come out, they're speaking in other tongues, men from Bithynia and Cappadocia and everywhere else, all these people are hearing the gospel preached in their own tongue, but, but some guys are scoffing and saying, these guys are drunk, okay? That's, that's the answer. So uh, Peter gets up to respond. He says, listen, it's the third hour of the day, nobody's drunk here. Here's what you're seeing. Let me explain to you what you're witnessing. This starts in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. (laughs) He's not playing. Can you hear that? Just as you know, in your midst, he's saying, this is not a secret. This happened and you saw it. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That sound familiar? Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath To seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When Peter stood up in the midst of thousands to defend Christ, to defend what was happening that day, that the helper had arrived, he went to Psalm 16. He saw that day, he saw all that had happened in Christ living and dying and rising, fulfilling the words of David, written hundreds of years before. It's amazing. It's not bad for a fisherman who had, you know, for three years couldn't keep his foot out of his mouth for five minutes, right? Brothers tearing it up. What does that show us? Well, it shows us what happens when the Holy Spirit gets on somebody. 
I mean, one of my favorite verses is just a few more chapters here where there's a bunch of high and mighty religious people around and, and they're observing Peter and John as they're defending the faith and defending Christ and, and his, his claim to be Messiah. And it says they, they, were, they were worried about messing with him because it was, these were untrained men, but it was clear they had been with Jesus. Mm. May that be said of me. I want it to be clear I've been with Jesus. In this time of trouble and peril and evil that David finds himself in, he is declaring the joy of God's presence. His confidence is in God to show him the path of life, which is a path that leads to his presence. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's the thought trail as you go through these last few verses. Here's the thing, though. This path of life that he's talking about, it, it had a bridge that was blown to pieces by sin. And there was no way for us to get across the gap. It was too wide. And so every single one of us was doomed to death on this side of that chasm. Only someone who was perfect. These verses call him the Holy One. Only he had the tools and the knowledge to build that bridge again. And that perfect Holy One is Jesus. Our Savior King came and walked the path of death so he could make a way that we could walk the path of life. We couldn't build the bridge ourselves. Jesus had to do it for us. And the toll, the toll to cross that bridge, what do you think, friends? What should the price be for eternal, unceasing joy and pleasures forever in God's presence? What should the toll be? No price would be too high, would it? And yet it couldn't be lower. Jesus simply asks us to trust that the bridge he built will hold. He simply asks that we acknowledge we couldn't get to God ourselves and that we need his bridge to find the path of life. And once we walk across it, friends, we are invited to invite others to share with them that they need not die out in the wilderness searching for a path they will never find elsewhere. There is one narrow path that leads to eternal life, eternal joy, and the presence of our perfect God. And that narrow path is only found by following Jesus who walked it first. Praise be unto God. Amen. May we be a people who can be honest in struggle while also hoping in God. May we be a people who are content and rejoice in our eternal inheritance. And may we answer the call to walk the path of life and invite others to do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this miktam of David, this Psalm 16, thank you, God, for all that we see here, what we see revealed about you, that you are a strong refuge, a tower we can run to and be safe, but also, God, what we see about us, our tendency to run the other way, our tendency to try to find safety and solace in other things, God. Many of us, Lord, we have tasted the bitterness of giving our time, talent, and treasure, our affection to idols, 
to lesser false gods. Lord, we ask that you would forgive our treachery, every single one of us and every time that we've done that, when we repent for that foolishness. We ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see, give us wisdom and discernment, that we would avoid those distractions. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is not time. There is not time for this kind of foolishness. God, you've shown us too much. You have lighted the way with your glory. Help us not to fumble in darkness. It's not needed. Thank you, Lord, that you have set us free. You've given us the ability to have disciplined minds. Lord, please help us to put our thoughts in check by the power of your spirit. God, we cannot do it ourselves. But I thank you that the reality is we do not have to be ruled by thoughts that are contrary to your word. Thank you that we are not enslaved to those. Thank you you've made it possible by the power of your spirit that we can take them captive, that we can make thoughts that are contrary to your word submit to the truth that you have revealed. Thank you, God, that there is freedom and hope in that. Hallelujah. God, I thank you. I thank you that you many times and in many ways throughout your scriptures, you pointed forward that all of the scriptures Jesus said are about him. Thank you, God, that we can see this so plainly and clearly as David prophesied, pointing forward to the Holy One coming. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making it clear to us today that we could not build the bridge that would lead us to the path of life. We didn't have the tools or the know-how, but I thank you that the Holy One came. He paid the price. He did what was necessary. God, may we trust him. And God, I ask that you would light a fire in us. God, may our hearts be broken for the fact that so many wander in the wilderness, searching for life, searching for joy, searching for all of the things that are found in your right hand alone. God, may our hearts be broken for the lost. May we stop wasting so much time in feeble attempts to create our own little kingdoms. God, may we lay those things down and join you in the effort of building your kingdom, the only one that will last. Thank you that you've seen fit to invite us into that work, to allow us to be a part of what you are doing eternally. We do not deserve to be partners with you in that. We do not deserve to have you at our right hand helping us to defeat temptation and sin and to love others as a reflection of the love you've shown us. We do not deserve the freedom that you've given. We don't deserve the beautiful commission you've given. But God, we are thankful for all of it. We are overcome with gratitude for all of it. Help us to live out of that gratitude. You are wonderful and holy and beautiful and majestic and mighty. And we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. Our hope is in you, O oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.